0: Training, mindset, integrity, incremental improvement. What can you do better
1: today? Start right here with the Pandola Project. Hey everyone, this is the Pandola Project. I'm your host, Matt Pendola.
0: Hello, Matt Pendola, and I am Jake Parker. This is episode 29 of the Pendola Project, your process to success. Our guest today is Julie Hart. Matt, this may be my new favorite podcast. Julie has a PhD in sports psychology from the University of Perth. That's in Australia, which I learned tonight. She brought so much to the table, Matt. She talked about building a culture over just about
1: everything else, and that really seemed to be one of her core tenets, which is what we do here. I felt like we were cut from the same cloth. We've been coaching in parallel universes or something. It was just so great to hear all of her philosophies. But she's the real deal. I mean, she was one of the top athletes in her sport, and she's able to use that experience. The vast education that she has, combining that with her personal experience, and then, of course, her experience with her athletes is just unparalleled. I like She's as good of a coach as it gets, and I'm sure she would tell you she still has the white belt mentality. She's working and striving to be a better version of herself every day, but man, I just love that there are coaches like her out there, and it also reminds me, geez, she's just been down the road, so to speak, all these years, and I didn't even know that she existed. I just met her tonight for the first time, and thanks to Dan a heart in her family for getting her in here because this has been a game changer conversation and i know that you're going to come out of this interview feeling inspired feeling faithful about our future with ourselves with our kids with our community jake this is a special interview
0: absolutely matt i know i came away from this one feeling excellent again this is episode 29 with julie hart Julie Hart's here, everybody. Julie, thank you so much for coming in and talking with us. I'm so excited to get to talk to you. Yeah, good to be here. Yeah, I can't wait. I love the psychology aspect of, you know, well, I just love psychology in general, but especially when it comes to sports, accomplishment, and all of the intricacies of the brain and the body. They work together and they must work together, but... For many years, I feel like most of us only focused on the body part, and now I, I just am so interested in, in the psych part, so thank you again.
2: Yeah, excited. It's psychology gets you down a rabbit hole, for sure. <laughs> yeah,
0: many, many rabbit holes, and I'm sure we could talk for hours, but especially thanks for coming in, because you just got back from state swimming, right? Yeah, that's right. We were down in Vegas, state championships...
2: We got top eight. Yay. Well done! That must have been fun. Yeah, no, our team did really well, really well. It's our best finish yet since I've been there for about five years, and yeah, we would, we did really well. Pretty Congrats. proud of those kids.
0: Yeah, and we're talking about the Carson Tiger Sharks. That's right, Carson Tiger Sharks, Go Carson Tiger City, Sharks. Nevada. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I love it, and it's not too far from from Reno. It's funny that we haven't had on before yet, but we actually got in touch. I don't know who it was in relation to you, but Kate listened to Dana's episode and that's episode yeah. 19 called creating culture with dana Hart." And that was all about creating culture with young people she's a teacher here in the truckee meadows in reno and you are dana's sister-in-law that's right
2: yeah and, and kate's my younger sister got so. it so, yeah, yeah Dan- dana are... married my brother but we were best friends first so whoa, whoa. back when we were 11
0: deep roots yeah and you guys are obviously good people to know because dana was one of my favorite episodes that we've done so far matt
1: yeah did you guys swim together you you yeah so
2: yeah so her dad we lived in carson at the time and her dad and her family moved to carson he was the swim coach on and he got a job with at the time it was carson aquatic club we were the ducks back then but now we're the tiger sharks i'm not exactly sure is better tiger sharks is a little bit more intimidating but not as fun (laughs) <laughs> but it's still intimidating. It's not no, as cute. Not as cute. But yeah, so her dad got a job coaching with Carson Aquatic Club, and she and her family came over, and we're basically the same age. She's a year ahead of me in school, and we made fast friends pretty straight away when we were 11, hung out. And then my mom also got a job, or was coaching with Carson Aquatic Club, so our families ended up spending a lot of time together just because of the swimming, so...
0: And that's obviously where you developed the love of it, yeah? Yeah, for sure. From an early age, you were one of five kids. And so you guys, did yeah. you all do it? Was that just like the family activity with swimming? Would,
2: yeah, kind of. I think yeah. when you've got that many kids, you choose one thing and you can't yeah, drive them. Yeah, we're all everything. going. So guess what? <laughs> Everybody One of you in. swimming, so everybody's doing it. No, my mom, because she was coaching on the team, we got, I don't know how much reduced, but we got reduced rates. So my parents are like, sweet. Basically free swimming, you all better like it, and we all got in except for my oldest brother, but he was a little little too old to start at the time. And then out of the five kids, my younger sister and I both continued swimming. There were some kind of coach changes when we were when I was about twelve or thirteen that one of the coaches wasn't very savory, Um, and I ended up going to Reno Aquatic Club just a little bit north, about forty five minutes. And then my sister ended up joining me a couple years later, but. Whereas my other two older siblings ended up switching to other things. My older sister does piano and she did soccer. And my brother Sam is one of those people that is just God's gift to athletics. And he did football, swimming, decided to do the diving team once. He changed and did pole vaulting. He did downhill skiing and he made like state championships and everything. And everybody's like, but you only just started this term. You're such a jerk. He's going to go oh. be an astronaut now. Yeah, basically. He those, does.
1: those kind of people just are annoying. I know. Just, he's and he's like, so of course nice. Course he's and good he's at so it. nice. Of course good he is. Oh, yeah. on top of it, he's got to be nice. Yeah, that just makes yeah. it
2: worse. He's got a good smile and he's <laughs> super nice. <laughs> oh man, tell me he's at least like ugly. Is he ugly? Well, no, cuz Dana uh, married him, so he's he's handsome and he uh, he uh, and then he did an Ironman triathlon one time. He's like, "I think I'll just do it." Of course he did. So,
0: Julie, tell us about your swimming career Because starting at such a young age You developed a love of it And now you are a coach of it Tell us how you got to that coaching point What took you there? High school, college?
2: Yeah, so as I said I started in Carson City Carson City, Nevada uh, And, yeah, just fell in love with it And I remember having a conversation I was And I did all the things when I was a kid Softball, soccer, basketball All the things And I remember having a conversation with uh, my coach when I was about 12 actually Dana Hart's dad Vinny um, and he's like you can and he sat me down he's like you can be great at soccer you can be great at swimming but you can't be great at both I was like all right I'm gonna be great at swimming and I and that kind of set me on a path and ended up having a kind of a breakthrough year when I was 13 or 14 going from pretty good locally and regionally in like the Bay Area San Francisco Bay Area to all of a sudden being on the national stage and I thought I was I thought it was pretty badass. Awesome. Until I got two nationals and <laughs> then got, I don't know, 102nd out of 109. I was like, oh, oh no. I mean, that's still an, an accomplishment that you yeah, got it, it, there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I just, I just loved it. I love the training. I love the hard work. I love the friendships that I had. Um, and I had a number of really good coaches along the way who pushed me and good teammates and and then, you know, having the, having the blessings of a lot of other people financially and I was one of five kids. We didn't have a lot of money growing up and certainly got help from anonymous donors on the team, giving, giving suits and giving tuition money and these sorts of things. And my younger sister and I both were good enough to make division one on scholarships. I went to the University of Georgia on a swimming scholarship, although I did have mostly an academic scholarship, which they loved because they didn't have to spend as much money on me. Went to Georgia, and we were national champions my freshman year, and we came second to Auburn. Shaking fists. You can't see see it. it. I can see it. You can't see see it, but I'm shaking my fists at Auburn. That glare. Pretty hardcore. They got first my sophomore, junior, senior, and we got second every year. (sighs) Wow. And I swam while I was at Georgia. I made the world championships team uh, in Fukuoka, Japan, in 2001. I was on a relay. It's... Trivia, trivia, you're not, like, most Americans are like, what? There's a swim team? Lay it Um, on me, I'm ready. But while I was at the meet, there was a timing malfunction. Our team, we came, we actually came second. The Australians beat us. But they had, there's a rule in swimming, for relays especially, that if you jump in the water before a race is finished, like in celebration you will get disqualified. Oh. Oh. Um, and so the Didn't Australians, the Australians, and most Americans know this rule because college swimming has a lot of relays and high school swimming has a lot of relays. And so team sport is part of swimming in, in America. And anyway, so they beat us and their girls jumped in to celebrate. And we all looked at the, me and my teammates, we looked at each other and we're like, <gasps> did we just win?
0: Did they just jump in? Oh no. Oh no. I that. can't
2: believe they jumped in. And it was it was maybe a second too early. Had they waited one, maybe two seconds they would have been fine because the last girl would have finished. But they didn't. And then on the scoreboard it showed our team is getting disqualified. We're like, no, 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 no. No, not our team. It was them. They <laughs> your jumped point, in. Your are the Australians. <laughs> um, and then so it was total confusion and then it turned out and then it showed the Australians disqualified as well. So we were, we were disqualified. They were disqualified. Turned out there was a timing malfunction in our lane. So, there's in the water, there's an electronic touchpad. So, when you touch the wall, it registers your fingers as touching the wall and it stops the clock. There's also a sensor on the starting blocks. And you're not allowed to leave the starting blocks as a relay swimmer before the swimmer in the water touches the wall. False start. So, it registered one of our starts as being a false start as having left early. But that lane had been malfunctioning all day. There'd been a discrepancy between the blocks. And anyway, so... The Americans that we were, we had video evidence. There was a whole big Mm -hmm. tribunal that night with all the countries. General consensus was nobody likes America, so we were decued. The Australians actually really did break a rule, so they were disqualified also. So the medals actually went to, I think it went to Great Britain and Japan and Germany. Also being the good Americans that we are, we sued. You contested, obviously. Um, And I learned that there's an international court for sport arbitration. Uh, medals for things like this. Yeah. Mostly deals with drug-related cases, but also for things like this. Um, and we ended up being awarded as co-champions with Great Britain. Um, but if you look in the record books, it won't show us as being co-champions. So we got the medals. We got the medal money. Our American record was recognized. But if you go in the record books, we will not you won't find my name. So you guys know what happened, but the world doesn't yeah harsh Harsh. it is harsh what happened to the australians they were disqualified completely yep they broke they broke a rule that's harsh didn't follow yeah so like in america people didn't know about that so and i lived in australia for a while i went and i studied i got a a master's degree and a a doctoral degree in perth in western australia and when i i got there in 2007 and when i said oh yeah i was on the relay in japan in 2001 people would be like (gasps) that was the one the Australians got DQ'd I that thought one. you guys got DQ'd too and they like knew what I was talking about and that there had been a me and and they all knew and knew about me not necessarily me as my name but like Your that, team. they knew that relay mm-hmm. which was weird because in America people were like what I mean there's a world championships I know Australians the don't forget I guess but they knew and it was can you go over. back or are they going to like chase you out of Australia yeah no they thought it was fantastic trivia They're like, oh wow, you were there. Okay, they welcomed
0: you. You're lucky. No, it was good. You didn't get ostracized from Perth. (laughs) Yeah, no,
1: no, I hope not. (laughs) So you were you were an eight time All American, you said. Yeah. And you specialized though in longer distances, didn't you? Yeah my my
2: target race was I got recruited for the 500 free and the 1500. or the 1650 yard free.
1: Yeah. Okay. So is that typical to do a four by 200 to be on that team you you seem to have some range here i did i went
2: i came down to the 200 that was about as as sprinty as i got was a 200 meter but i trained a lot specifically for that because it's you know for an individual race making an international team for the u.s uh you have to be top two in your individual race for a relay they take top six Okay. So I kind of hedged my bets, and I looked at it, and I said, "Well, if I want to make a team, then I've my best bet is making a relay." Uh, so I did a lot of specific training for the 200 freestyle, in addition to the mile and the 500. So, how
1: how is that different? And i want to talk about your a little bit of a atypical athlete in in that sense. I think I had a mental block about being on relays, period, as a distance runner. Yeah. And, and in fact, everybody would just have a good laugh when I was thrown on the 4x4 team like, oh, man, watch Matt try to get the baton. <laughs> of course, I wasn't super confident in my 400 speed, if you will. Right. I think it was more in my own mind. Now that I look back at it, I think I could have performed a little better, but I just thought, well, I'm a 10K guy, so this isn't going to work. How did you deal with that, more of the sports psychology side of things? I know that's part of your education, but was that something that you felt like was a challenge to go into a much shorter event like this? A lot of different attributes that you have to be able to uh, produce at once, really. It, It was kind of a challenge part of what helped me question mark
2: at the time the the mile wasn't an olympic event for women in you know the early 2000s they had the 800 meter free for women and they had the 1500 meter free for men and then it dropped down to the 400 so for me the 800 was that's half of the distance of the one that I was my specialty event so i already kind of had to come down for the 800 Whereas the 200, so the mile, like you've got time to kind of strategize. And if you screw up on the dive, it's kind of okay. There's a little bit of wiggle room mm-hmm. on in the mile. Whereas the 800, you kind of have to be a lot faster than the 400 also. But the 200 for me was just a sprint. Ready, go. And so I could just go really fast and hold it. Whereas the 400 and 800 were kind of really awkward for me. The 1500, I could strategize. The 200... Just shut your brain off. Off you go, and so it was developing. And I had a really, I had a really good kick on my stroke, which was valuable in the 200 as well. But yeah, it was it was a lot of different training for that for sure.
0: That leads me into your training in general, because that's partially the reason that we asked you to come in was to talk about these new, maybe they're not new, but these new philosophies of training, and maybe more isn't always better. Right. And so when you were coming up in, in the high school and college, you were probably doing way more miles and kilos. Miles, Ks, K's yeah, K's. kilometers. You were swimming more I than, swam a lot. than
2: you would probably tell your athletes to do now, right? Yeah, that's right. So when I was in high school, I was you know, averaging about 45 Ks a week, 45,000 yards a week. And then when I got to college, it jumped to 90, like straight up. That's double. Year. Double. Double, I went from doing six water practices a week with a little bit of dry land to doing 10 water practices, three weightlifting, three dry lands. But as you can imagine, I got injured straight away. Yeah, I bet you felt um, awesome. And I was very injured for the first two years. And that's part of why my kick was so good, because I spent, you know, my in almost my entire sophomore year, I spent kicking with my hands up my sides because I couldn't lift my arm above shoulder height, which was awesome.
0: Yeah, it Uh, sounds like something that a coach should see and go, this is a problem, maybe this training isn't working for everyone.
2: Yeah, which at the time, I mean, that was, I was the only one in the distance group who was struggling, and we had a couple of kids who could physiologically handle that amount of distance and do really well, and I just, I wasn't. And I managed to, by my junior year, kind of fix things around, and I changed you know, how many practices I did and how much yardage I did. But certainly with my kids, now that I'm training with the tiger sharks, we do far less, kind of more bang for my buck. We're, we do a lot higher intensity, but a lot less yardage. And I do a lot more that, so if we're doing aerobic yardage where we can breathe, it's much more focused on technique and drills and skills. So I'm incorporating a little bit of both instead of just doing garbage yardage, just up and down a black line. I love um, that term. Yeah, that's a pretty common jargon. But there are still a lot of of programs that do that. They just get the Ks in to get the Ks. Absolutely. Um,
1: I love, though, that you studied both exercise and sports science and also the sports psychology for your degrees. And I love that you have that combo and you're also now taking your own prior experiences to help these kids Talking about ramping up from what you did in high school versus what you had to do in college, why do you think, first of all, I guess a two-parter kind of question here, but why do you think it is that there's, tends to really not be much ramping between high school and the first year in college? And then also you were already discussing beforehand about some of the tactics you're using in improving frequency for your athletes to get them ready for that level. But why do you think it is that our high school athletes have such a tough time transitioning in college? Maybe they're not prepared, but also if they're doing a lot of volume too, too young too soon, we know that that's not good for them, but we have to at the same time get them ready for this kind of frequency and, and volume that they're going to have in college. What, what's your approach to that?
2: Well, it, it is kind of a little bit of a sweet spot knowing my background with my own personal swimming and having coached in a number of different countries and at a number of different programs and also kind of knowing what goes on in the college system like if I do too little with my kids when they're high school aged they're not prepared for college should they choose to go on a college swimming but if you do too much like you said it's you're prepping them for injuries because they're doing overuse in high school so I get away with a lot of it just by Frequency of practice. So we'll be in the water eight times a week, but it's not going to be a ton. Like when we come in the morning, you know, we're maybe only doing 3,000 yards and it's going to be technique based and it's going to be aerobic and it's going to be lots of kicking in, lots of fins. So they're taking the pressure off their shoulders, but they still have to get up for a morning practice. Like because when you get to a college program, you're going to be doing nine to 10 practices a week. Uh, you're going to get up before school, you're going to be up at 5.30 jumping in the cold water and dealing with it. So for me, getting the kids able to be up before school and do physical activity and then still be functioning at school during the day and performing in their school activities and be able to come back in the afternoon and still perform in the water for the afternoon practice is important as well. So a lot of it is creating habits and getting their body physiologically used to performing twice a day and also just getting used to having to do, having to perform when you're asked to perform. So it it might not be the volume that they're going to get in college, but it will be a frequency and they'll be used to it.
1: I I love that because... It's introducing them to the schedule that they might have to adjust to in college. It's not going to be so much of a shock. They're used to getting up early and getting their first practice in. That frequency is there, but you're not overdoing the volume. There are some athletes I've worked with where we discover – in their senior year maybe of high school that with those kind of demands and that kind of frequency, let's say that their schedule that they're keeping between their academics and their athletics, that needs to change a little bit so they can adjust to those things. And for some kids, they realize that, geez, maybe going to college and competing in college is not gonna be for me, and at least they can discover that early. And for other kids that say, yeah, this is gonna be for me, but now I have a better ritual, I have better planning, I'm more prepared, right? Yeah,
2: Yeah, exactly, and with me, it's a soft place to land. Like If I've got kids who struggle with their academics because they're doing morning practices, we can take it back a notch for a month or two and get back on schedule, get your academics under control, change when you're studying and how you're studying and maybe the amount of extracurricular social life that you're doing if your goal is college swimming or sports in college your friends are now your swimming friends they're not you're not going shopping on the weekend you're not going out to movies at midnight that's just how it is and and it's a big adjustment sometimes
1: you're just bringing up so many important points here Uh, we're talking about the kind of adjustments that athletes need to make a choice especially when they decide they want to go to that higher level more elite level if you will and That is a choice, and it needs to be their own decision, but I love your philosophies as a coach because, in part, my experience sometimes dealing with athletes and other coaches is that this stuff is kind of thrust upon them almost, and if they don't show up for practice because they had a late-night studying and they're trying to meet their academic needs, they're even ostracized sometimes or made to feel less than because they didn't show up for practice that next morning. And the coach didn't even bother to ask, well, what's been going on? How are you feeling? How are you sleeping? What adjustments may we need to make? And I love that you said, hey, sometimes we need to make some adjustments.
2: On a one-off, if you miss practice, then probably something came up. But if it's a pattern, then let's figure out what's going on And you either need to change what you're doing or I need to change what I'm expecting. Oh, man.
1: So So. we could talk all day about this because as a coach myself over the years, I've also had to have those conversations with athletes where do you really want to make these sacrifices? Because. You don't have to. Let's say you are have some attributes and you're talented, quote unquote, at this. Doesn't mean that you have to do it in college, for example, because right. that can be like a full time job and it is a full time job. It is. And and you have to decide that, geez, this is more important to me than going out with my friends. So another thing that we talk about with our culture a lot is exactly in my Pandola project with my runners, they work off of each other so well and they're all friends and supportive, but that pretty much is their social connection and they don't have much time for other things and that's the reality of it. But there's nothing wrong when a kid says, you know, I don't want to continue with this kind of schedule. That's fine. We're... We're, we're just going to make a different goal now, right? That's right, that's right. So Julie, with sports psychology being such a large part of your education and your background, I'm just curious, as a coach, how are you using that to help serve your athletes now? I'd say the biggest way that I use it is is
2: building culture. Certainly on a one-on-one basis, I try to give little nudges on on psychology with my athletes um, at the moment. I don't quite have anybody at a super high level yet where they're getting to those points where the anxiety or in the expectation and, and those sorts of things are weighing in yet. We're, we're getting closer to that in the next couple of years. But where I use it most is in... Subtle things like, one of my favorite things to do with my kids, I call them drop breaths. And I actually learned it from a coach in Shanghai. I was on a international trip with some some all-star age group kids. We didn't do a lot of speaking because he didn't speak English and we didn't speak Chinese. Uh, there was an interpreter, but he, did, he didn't He did have a pace clock. Um, and he would do in between every repeat, they would do basically five breaths. And I, I kind of looked at it and they're kind of like yoga breaths where you, take, you get one breath in above the surface and then you go under the water and you blow basically all of your air out, nose and mouth deep breath. so you're blowing out for, you know, eight or nine seconds and coming up and you get a one or two second breath. And he'd do five of those in between everything. And it was a way to kind of, I think for him, to calm down the heart rate and as a recovery and then get your breath under control. Because in swimming, you don't get to breathe just whenever you feel like it. So, being able to control breath is a really important skill to learn. But I use it with my kids as, as attention control. And we start from our seven-year-olds. And because we'll do five or 10 or 15 in a row, and we'll, ha- we'll usually have a leader and they'll go synchronized together. So that we'll have 10 or 15 kids. One kid gets to do the breathing and everybody else has to match them. So A, they're clearing their mind physiologically. They're, they're getting that eight seconds out, two seconds in for you know for 30 seconds um but also as a group they're connecting to each other they have to pay attention to what is my teammate doing what am i doing am i matching what everybody else is doing and at the end of it like you'll see the little seven-year-olds and they'll be crazy town seven-year-olds running around wherever doing not paying attention and then when we finish those breaths they're they're cued in, they're ready to go so from the young age, it's a culture thing. It's connecting people to each other. From my senior group, from my high school-aged athletes, I use it for cues behind the blocks. When they're getting nervous for races, I'm like, you know, we do drop breaths all the time. And they're like, yeah. I was like, what do you feel like after you do those? Relaxed, calm, ready to go. I was like, you can do that behind the block. You're getting nervous before your race, five drop breaths. Nobody can see it. It's not embarrassing. It's just changing the way that you're breathing and getting back in touch with how you feel and what you're thinking about. And then they're ready to go. So it's subtle things like that sort where it's getting them used to being aware of what their body is doing, aware of what their mind is doing. But they wouldn't say that we do a lot of psychology. Um, I do a lot of just like little nudges like that. And I use it a lot for group dynamics. I've got a kid right now who's struggling a little bit with a little bit of bullying at school, and I've got a couple of team leaders that I can go to and say, hey, you know, Sammy Swimmer's having a little bit of a rough time. Can you make sure you invite him to lunch today? Or, hey, why don't you guys go bowling this weekend or go to a movie and and make sure you include, you know, little Sammy Swimmer, He's, he's really struggling. Or, you know, knowing that one kid is a little rough around the edges and doesn't share a lane very well. And just going to a couple of the other leaders and saying, hey, little Susie is kind of like a cat. She'll scratch you, but she'll purr if you're nice to her, you know? So <laughs> can you can you just share a lane with her? She, she really, like, because a lot of kids, you know, they have their favorites. But having an older kid, a senior group leader kid, reach out to a young, insecure middle schooler and saying, hey, why don't you share a lane with me? goes a really long way with those kids. And then with the kid that I'm asking to be the leader, they get to be connected and feel like they're giving back to the program as well. So I do a lot of stuff like that where I'm, I rely on the kids to help each other out. That
0: sort of answers my question. Does it land well?
2: Because, you know, at the end of the
0: day, these are young, young kids. And so are they like kind of rebellious against it? Or um, does, do they accept it? Do they acknowledge that they are a part of this yeah. culture that they also have to help
2: build? I think I got really lucky early nice. on. The first year that I was coaching uh, on the Tiger Sharks, I had a kid who was naturally just really empathetic mm-hmm. and naturally drawn to helping out his teammates. And he would just do that on his own. He was 16, so it should have been way too cool for school. That's what I mean, um, right. Right. But he he would see a little 12 year old just struggling and he'd put his arm around their shoulder and say, hey, come share my lane with me. And, and he naturally did that without being asked. And so now my kids five years on, they were those 12 year olds and they've learned from their older teammates, this is what we do, this is who we are as Tiger Sharks. We're gonna look out for each other, we're gonna reach out and we're gonna help out. And I've been really lucky Every year, it's it's been hard to lose the leaders that I have, but every year I've been here, there's been another leader pop up who's ready to take that on and say, yeah, I can do that for you, coach. What do you need? I've just been really lucky with a really good group of kids, but I also work a lot on making sure that the kids know this is what we do. I was going to say, give yourself some credit so, because
0: you know you are ultimately responsible for that culture and it's clear that you've cultivated it.
2: Yeah, like, you know, I, I sat down with the group alum. So I, I coach, mostly I coach the high school kids, but I also coach a master's group in the mornings of grown-ups, and I help out here and there. I have a one of my favorite groups is a, I guess it's middle school, early high school kids who didn't swim when they were younger, and now they're too old to do soccer, they're too old to jump into basketball, but their parents still want them to work out. They're all the, like, weird, funky, I like anime kids. My nothing nothing against anime. Nope, Love anime. yeah <laughs> <laughs> But they're, you know, they're just a little bit, little bit weird and they love it and they're super quirky um, and we have just this fun little group of kids that just, they just want to work hard and hang out and otherwise are kind of geeky at school. But I sat down with the middle school age group, probably two weeks ago actually, and we talked about boundaries, like physical boundaries, emotional boundaries. What does it mean when somebody says, I'm really struggling right now, I need some personal space? And how do we react to that as an 11 12 year old kid? Because we had some kids at the time who were getting personally offended when somebody would say I need some space and what they wanted to do was hug that person to make them feel better and what the person needed was I need some space. I've been mean, talking about like that sort of stuff. And then as Tiger Sharks, what do we do and how do we react to this? And can we take this into school and can we take it into our homes? How are we as teammates even from age, you know, 10 11? building up this is how we act and this is who we are and this is what we do for each other. And it's really important for me from that perspective on building up people who care about their people
1: around them. I think that a good coach, and you clearly are one, gives good structure and, and, and empathy and, and gives that example. So there's that enthusiasm and you're offering that spark. But at the same time, I think the culture once It's cultivated, if you will. Once that happens, then a good coach, I think, steps back a little bit and allows that culture to grow with just just enough to nourish it but not so much to smother it. And I think that's the balance. And it reminds me of when you're talking about these kids that will help each other out and somebody even takes the lead on that. This is what I'm so – Happy to hear with a culture like yours because I think initially it does take that work from the coach, but then it takes a life of its own. And I think that's when the kids have really made that culture what it is at that point. And it's a good coach that steps back enough to let that happen.
2: Yeah, for sure. And the kid that I found out he was bullied, he was getting bullied, it was because my other swimmers came up to me and said, Hey, coach, this kid's having a rough time. And then they took ownership and they said what do we do about this? Tell us what to do. How can we help him out? So it wasn't me saying, "Oh, I'm noticing this kid's struggling a bit." They were telling me. It was a senior in high school that was telling me, "Hey, what do I do about this? You know, he's got the coolest haircut and hmm. fancy new, you know, white shoes and whatever, but he's reaching out to his teammates and saying, how can I lift these guys up? And I'm uh, so proud of those guys in that moment. So proud.
0: Yeah, All that's right. really cognizant of a, a high school senior to be able to do that. And it's probably going to be more effective coming from that person rather than from an authority figure like yourself.
2: Yeah, for sure. Like I might have said, I might have reached out to those guys and said, hey, right. you know, reach out. But it wasn't me saying like, guess what team? We're doing a team bonding thing this weekend. Everybody come. Hope you like each other. Mm-hmm. It was those guys saying, as a small group, let's do something together. Organically, let's.
1: yeah. I love that you fit in, you kind of sneak in meditation almost, right? Yeah, yeah, they don't even know. <laughs> it's like, oh, wait, I just meditated. Because you say, you know, I've had this conversation with Dr. Do Cotter, who I'm just finishing up my mentorship with her this year. So she's a sports psychologist and has worked with people like Michael Phelps. And I told her, The thing that I think I'm dealing with, in part, with a lot of these skills that I'm learning is this might work a little bit more with adults or professional athletes. But with my kids, I've got to kind of sneak in. We do gut smashers, Jill Miller's approach to getting the body breathing and getting the body ready a little bit more, get that neural feedback that you need and then we start to go into let's like, say we go for an easy run and we're breathing in for five steps we're breathing out for four steps right. and that is allowing that process to happen but without actually calling it meditation yeah, yeah. They, they have no idea that's what goes on right but for my, some reason i, I feel better yeah. I know what's going on mm-hmm. right no i love I love that, and I do want to address the big fish in the small pond scenario, at least here in Reno. We deal with that a lot. I think when you had some success earlier on, you mentioned then you went to got to the national level and you realized that, geez, okay, I've got some work to do yeah, here for sure. And so the idea or the ego that gets involved, not only with the athlete, but I think with well-intended even coaches and parents, but I've had some athletes that had a lot of success and then they get to that bigger stage and they probably perceive themselves, it's like compared to what they, yeah. they thought, okay, I'm really good at this and they are, but they're not aware of what else is out there. And so I love that you went into California, where obviously the competition is very high. But I'm curious as to how did you get used to that level of competition without letting it overwhelm you or make you feel like you couldn't get to that level?
2: Hindsight's twenty twenty, you know. I wish I could swim now, go back and be like, ah, oh, so many things I could have been better. I, I actually, I struggled a lot with anxiety, and I had huge weight on my shoulders for the expectations that I have for myself, the expectation I thought that other people had for me, and that was my biggest struggle as an athlete. Just for myself, was the confidence to feel like I belonged, mm-hmm. um, and feel like I had earned it, and and was supposed to be there. And a lot of it now, as a grown-up, I'm like, oh, that was so silly, like of course I had done the work and of course I belonged. Like, you know, I was at the University of Georgia, for example, we were, we had about, on average, about 24 girls on the team at any given time. After my senior year, that was in 2004, and we had, of the 24 girls, you know, eight of them made the American Olympic team. And we had a couple make international teams as well, and we had another eight that could have made the Olympic team. And so, in that pond, it was like, well, what are you doing? You didn't make it? What's wrong with you? But, like, I went to world championships, and I looked around and said, oh, well, I only made a relay, or, oh, well, I'm not in an individual event, or, well, I only snuck in I was sixth place. It was on an off year, you know, it wasn't, you know, so-and-so wasn't at the meet, or I didn't really do that great. And I actually really didn't feel proud of that accomplishment for years. And I got to, I was in, yeah, in, in Perth, Western Australia and my swimmers that I was coaching at the time, this was, you know, this was probably eight or nine years down the track and they found out that I had been on this relay and they found it on YouTube. They could find my race on YouTube and they're like, coach, this was amazing. And my recollection of it was that I had let my team down and I swam so slow and, Oh my gosh! I I was just so lucky to be in that race, and then looking at it eight years down the track, it was like, no, actually, well, I had a pretty good race, and I I gained on the girl next to me, and I'd and I'd contributed to this thing, and it was. But so it's so strange to kind of when you're in it, you feel way less than in that year, and it's the the anxiety part of it can be really crushing. But in reality, if you're looking from the outside, it's like, oh man, that's amazing and you did so well. And But I did a lot of work as a swimmer with my own stuff where it was making sure I was doing the training and making sure I was doing little extra things. Like my way of getting my confidence up was doing more than I thought was necessary. So if I was asked for X, Y, and Z, I would add on you know, an extra one, two, three. Or I would you know, I steal that. I like that. Yeah. Spent. (laughs) So I was just making sure like, okay, if this is what my coach thinks I need to do to be prepared, then I'm just going to do this extra little bit. And it wasn't, I certainly wasn't doing extra yardage, but it was, you know, things like making sure my diet was on track or making sure that I was getting extra sleep on the week or in the lead up to an event, it was making sure that I was clearing my social calendar and I wasn't you know messing around doing extra walking or extra you know extra running or or these sorts of things and it was making sure that I had like my finances in order because that was a huge source of anxiety for me so if I knew that I had bills coming up and I had a meet coming up I would make sure that I had everything paid in advance so that uh, that wasn't something that was going to be weighing down on me while I was racing or those sorts of things and certainly reaching out to family and making sure I had you know, social crutches that could, could boost me up when I needed it, those sorts of things. At the end of the day, it, I did, you know, I had enough injuries, and I had, and it, it became too hard. And I'd finished my college eligibility and didn't get the result I wanted at the Olympic trials and switched. And I said, all right, well, swimming's done, and I'll get into coaching instead.
1: Right. So a couple points that you brought up, but I think it's important to delve into a little bit more is, for example, with my athletes talking about doing more volume, let's say, and we are not necessarily needing to do more volume that could hurt them more than it'll help them, but they wanna feel more prepared. So we talk about, well, can we improve your recovery? Can we improve your nutrition? Can we read a book about mindset and start to really work on the fearless mind, for example? So these are things you can do and add those steps. I love that uh, XYZ one, two, three, and I I love it too. I don't know if you said it on purpose, but because you have XYZ, X, Y, Z, and that's the alphabet. And then one, two, three, these are numbers. So you're doing different things besides more swimming to improve that swimming. So there's the one, two, three, that's going to be the nutrition, the recovery, maybe the dry land training, for example. That's a great point. I think a lot of athletes can understand that when they have more preparation and when they feel more prepared, they feel more ready because what we focus on is what we feel and there's a lot of athletes like yourself that I feel like are not as vulnerable as you are and you're saying, hey, I had these automatic negative thoughts. I had these self-doubts and then these are the things I was able to control and I saw that anxiety as being excitement maybe more because I had done not just XYZ but now one, two, three.
2: Right, yeah, and now knowing a little bit more and I work on it very subtly with my kids on Making sure you're mentally prepared as well. And that was something that I didn't have that piece as an athlete, but I did gravitate towards it for my own knowledge and my own studies. So with my kids, yeah, talking about being prepared, having a routine on the morning of a race or having a routine the week before a race or making sure that they're doing goal setting and these sorts of things. And at the moment it's, yeah, it's subtle stuff. It's nothing groundbreaking or life changing, but it is changing a mindset and changing expectations.
1: Yeah, and one thing I started doing with my athletes, we have our education station where we're gonna talk in a group or we Mm -hmm. might partner up and do performance partnering and we'll have some exercises that we do, mindset type of exercises. But then I started asking them since they all love their phones so much. And and (laughs) I just, I have to accept it. I'm not a phone person myself. But so I said, okay, use your phones, do a voice memo. What I want you to do is have a voice log that you can go back to and listen to, but also if you want something to share with me, you can send that to me as your coach, and so sometimes I get these voice memos about, let's say, okay, my zones and my race that I'm going to perform at, this is my plan, these are my automatic native thoughts, these are the cues, the intrinsic, or these are the external things I'm thinking about, whatnot, and then have that athlete be able to communicate that with that in this voice memo and i think that sometimes they end up saying some things that they wouldn't normally say even if it was just me and them in the room but mm. now they're just saying it out loud and then they decide yeah. to send it to me which it's actually been kind of cool to hear some of the things that my athletes will talk about and then it just gives me the chance as a coach when i see them next time hey I didn't realize that you were dealing with this level of anxiety about yeah. something not even related to your sport, but we need to talk about that and address that a little bit more. Yeah, right? that would be really helpful. I'll have to put that in my little pocket for sure. I learned that one from from Dr. Joanne. I always try yeah. to give credit where where it's due. But So, Julie, I do want to talk to you about Well, there's an athlete I was talking to recently. He told me that he started to swim in the pool at five years old, but it was actually a therapy because he had social integration disorder, which he was able to overcome, he said, by about age seven or eight. And the swimming, going to the pool is what allowed him to sort of deal with that at such a young age. Have you heard of that or do you deal with athletes who have issues that they're going to you for? Is this common? I think it's totally common. And it's not necessarily
2: overtly that the parents will let us know. There are a lot of kids that we kind of find out just watching their behavior that they're autistic, or they have anxiety disorders, or spatial awareness, or social anxiety. But swimming is a really good sport for those types of things, mainly because when you're learning swimming, you swim in a line, you go five seconds apart, you have your personal space it with a rule to follow and a skill to learn, and it's your individual skill. And when you play soccer, if you screw up on the soccer pitch, your whole team is going to be mad at you. But if in swimming, you don't quite get that two-hand touch at the wall, it's it's just you, and it's just your coach, and you get to learn. And I've found also with, I've coached over the years a number of kids with autism where I think... I've found that the, the feeling of the water is actually really important too, depending on what their sensitivities are, because a lot of kids have, you know, they have they wear different types of clothing or textures or things because they have sensitivity to these sorts of things. And being in the water, um, a lot of kids really like the feeling of being able to float and have it just kind of slide past and it's not itchy and it's not rough and they get their space and their time. and. In addition to the feeling of it, you get the sound. When you put your head underwater, it mutes everything else going around. So a lot of kids, if they have sensitivities to sound, they put their head under and they just go. And it's really helpful and they learn how to interact with other kids in an environment that they get to control that is sound and feeling and environment control as well. That they don't have the consequences of, quote, screwing up if they're on a team sport.
1: That's great. I hope if anybody listening knows somebody that might benefit from doing that, you know, just give a, giving it a try and, and seeing if that helps, it's worth, it's worth trying that, right?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would recommend that it's always way more helpful as a coach to know up front because then we can be more accommodating. If I know that your child has some special needs, then I can make sure that I pay a little bit more attention to... Like I had, when I was coaching in Minneapolis, I had two kids with autism, and they were totally different. One was hyper aware of his, his space, and you couldn't touch him. I would give, at the end of every practice, I would give little fist bumps to all the kids when they got out of the water. And we had to do air bumps because he just, he couldn't touch. And it was like the greatest thing ever after coaching him for about a year. And he finally gave me a fist bump and I was like, (gasps) Whoa, awesome, man, I really reached this kid. Whereas, so I had that kid who just was hyper aware of space and hyper aware of touch. And another kid at the same time in the same group who was, unaware of space and he would just be all over and they could not share a lane and they both needed kind of similar things really being told you know you go at this time and you do this stroke and you're on this side of the lane and and this sort of stuff but they couldn't swim in the same lane and knowing like one of the parents was really up front with us saying hey this little guy he's not going to give you a fist bump it's okay he still loves coming to swimming, but the other parent was trying to hide the fact that their kid had issues, and we had to kind of figure it out as we went along, and it would have been way more helpful to know, so that we could serve him better. But I got it at the time, you know, because you don't want to be turned away and told like, oh, we don't deal with kids like kids like yours, or, and it's really hard, but it is sometimes a lot more helpful to know... You know, my kid's on medication for anxiety, so if she freaks out at the swim meet, this is what's going on. So, well, yeah,
1: no, I mean, sorry to interrupt, Julia. I just, this, I, I feel like, okay, everything that you're bringing up, I feel like you and I have been working in some parallel universe next to each other with our athletes. They just happen to be swimmers yeah. and mine, but... It reminds me of I had an athlete in recently who had an issue with her neck. And it had been from sleeping and she couldn't sleep well. And she was afraid if she were going to tell me that she wasn't sleeping well, that I wouldn't uh, allow her to race. So she wasn't going to tell me or she wasn't going to say anything. And then finally it comes out and it came out because we had solved the issue. I noticed that she had an elevated shoulder. She was obviously favoring her neck. And so... We did some adjustments and then it felt amazing for her. She slept really well. And then she said, oh, so I had these issues, right? And it brings it out, I think, a little bit more when they start to trust you. That starts to come out a little bit more. And it's hard because in the beginning when you start working with an athlete, you do your due diligence and you maybe I have like a questionnaire and I'll ask right. them, but they don't know you yet. And, and so I've been trying to think about ways that I could have a little bit more trust from the get go. So I think it comes back to the vulnerability thing again, right. like this is who I am. I'm just, I have my flaws. I have things that I work on still. I have ADD, you know, maybe these are things that once you are a little bit more human to them and vulnerable yeah. to them, they open up a little bit more, right?
2: Yeah. And usually it, it comes out, or usually I'll talk to a parent and be like, hey, I've noticed this about your kid. Is is this a thing? Or, you know, hey, I've noticed this happened at the swim meet. You know, your kid was, was acting this way. Is there something that we can do to make it better? Or is this a common thing with testing at home or at school? And just get little bit more information but it definitely
1: is a trust issue so I have to ask you this Julie the problem I have at times with the way that our society views athletes body image for example I'm thinking about these athletes just wearing swim gear very revealing do you deal with body image issues with your young athletes and how do you deal with it
2: It's definitely an issue, especially once you start getting into middle school and going through puberty. As soon as boys and girls start, their bodies start changing, they're hyper aware of what's happening to themselves. And then also very aware of what's happening or what's not happening to people around them. Like, are they on par with everybody else? Do they look normal or what they think is normal? In swimming, you don't get to hide anything. The suits are really small because they're fast. So it is something that we talk about with our kids about these suits are appropriate to wear to train in and these suits are not and this is why they're not. Or talking about diet just to be healthy as an athlete because this is what your engine needs to run and making sure that we're taking care of ourselves just by eating vegetables and you know proteins and these sorts of things but there are certain athletes and typically it is females but we do have boys who struggle as well. and then if it becomes more of a fixation than it is a one-on-one conversation with those athletes on multiple occasions or bringing the parents into it and saying, Hey, I really noticed this about your kid. We've been talking about it a little bit. It would be really helpful to have you guys in on the conversation as well. And what can we do as a team of parent, swimmer athlete to make sure that your kid is comfortable and growing up, you know, with confidence and,
1: you yeah, know, absolutely. I, unfortunately, have dealt with some eating disorders with athletes. Yeah. The number is rising, unfortunately, and actually there are more boys – In the beginning, seventeen years ago, I don't think I had any boys that seemed to have any eating disorders. I'm sure it was it existed, but it wasn't talked about. about. It
2: It certainly wasn't talked
1: about. It wasn't talked. Yeah, and now, unfortunately, I've personally dealt with a couple of my boys with the same same uh, disorders. And this is such a sensitive topic and and subject. And so I don't feel like I'm qualified. First of all, I have got a certification and for nutrition, for sports performance, but that certainly just, it gave me better ideas about what I could guide my athletes in. But what we say is that athletes eat and train, they don't diet and exercise. Right. But I really still struggle with well, again, I I don't want to bash here, but other coaches are involved. I've had other coaches who are involved in the process who are giving their athletes guidelines on calorie intake, for example. They're putting them on diets. They're yeah. telling them, eat x amount of calories a day and no more. Those are the kind of things that uh, some of my athletes are get and I tell them find a new coach. To me, I get really hot about that really quick.
2: Yeah, I am I am not certified to tell you how much you should be eating. Yep, if stay you're in your hu- lane, if, yeah, if you're hungry, have something to eat. Yeah. Maybe maybe have, you know, carrots instead of potato chips, but I'm not I'm not going to say, "Ooh, you just had 500 calories worth of protein drink. Uh, you might want to skip the salad." Tonight. I don't I don't have, I can't say that.
1: Absolutely. This is a issue that we all need to be aware of as coaches.
2: Yeah. No. And it it definitely comes up pretty frequently in swimming just because you can't hide behind your clothes. And there are kids, you know, I've got some kids right now that are dealing with body awareness issues for sure. And then you add on to their body awareness issues in addition to social media and the photos that they're taking of themselves, of their teammates, of their friends and the things that they're looking online, I don't it's a war zone out there and I I find myself over my head all the time. Yeah. And, and, and how do how do you manage this child who is 12 and is not ready for the maturity of what they're putting out there and what they're dealing with yet.
1: Absolutely and not everybody is the same. Right. And so, some athletes may be performing at their very, very best or optimally at a higher body fat than another yeah. athlete, and you just simply have two different body well i don't say body types that's a that's a myth in itself, but you know you have two bodies that are performing optimally and they do not look the same, so yeah. one of those bodies could have a six pack, but that's like the right. coveted thing so as a coach, i've tried to become more aware of even when you're you start to notice that an athlete gets some recognition like, oh, man, look at your six-pack. That's, yeah. that's amazing. Oh, my God. But how is that making that other athlete feel right. in that space? Geez, I guess I need to get that six-pack otherwise, yeah, sure. right? And so there's just so much misinformation. And I blame, in part, my own industry. I mean, I'm disgusted sometimes with – coaches out there, strength coaches even, that are giving these guidelines and they don't have the qualifications for it. And if they did, they wouldn't be giving those kind of guidelines because they would actually know better, you know? Yeah. So I'm sorry, I kind of got all hot about this. Okay, <laughs> so let's let's move on to something. But our athletes, they, they need to be aware that it's about their own best selves and not about what somebody else deems as being optimal for them as an athlete right
2: yeah yeah we try to we try to make sure that they know what do they feel like when they eat certain foods yeah. And how do they perform when they eat certain foods and i try to bring it back to what does it feel like how do you perform and
1: what would it feel like if you changed some things around in your diet you're you're officially in my head. Yeah. And I and I said this before we started talking, but can we be friends because are we friends yet? We're definitely best friends, I think. We're, we're best <laughs> friends yeah. already. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I feel like I've really found a friend today. I just have so much respect for you already. You can't fake it, right, Jake? I mean, Everything Never. that good old Dana, Dana, I I'm so <laughs> grateful to Dana for coming in here, and then and then I'm sorry, your sister, my sister Kate, Kate wrote yeah. us, and uh, she told She's us pretty about amazing Dana. too. Oh, I'm sure she. Shout we got to get all the hearts yep. in here. Yeah, they're changing the world. The hearts are changing yeah. the world with their hearts. More hearts, more hearts. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Uh, you guys, you you have the right culture. That's for sure, and we're so lucky to have the hearts here. So, Julie, I have a seven-year-old she will tell you that she is turning eight in just a few weeks and she'll let you know she's about to be eight so as a young athlete walks in your doors and is going to get into your program what are your hopes for them what what are your dreams for them what are you going to have in your mind as the best version of your program to serve them
2: I think initially for the kids walking in the door, most kids in my program walk in between 7 and 10 years old. I just want them to love swimming. I want them to love swimming, and I want them to love what they're doing, and I want them to love learning. And then if they continue with the swimming, they're like, yep, I got all my friends are here, I am competing, I'm getting better. As they grow through the program, you know, the 10 to 12-year-olds we're working on, can we achieve goals? So I want them to be confident and know that they can control where they go to a degree that they have a say in in what they do and how they become and the results that they get are related to the work that they put in. And then as they get into high school, I want them to be good teammates. I want them to care about their lane mates. I want them to care about the people in other lanes. I want them to care about people on other teams, make friends, help each other out. If you're struggling, somebody's going to be there to catch you. If somebody else is struggling, you're going to be there to catch them. And then as they grow up as people with swimming, love
1: the water and yeah, love the learning. Whether or not they're going to be a great swimmer or not... That's not the point going into your program. That's obvious. And even though it would be a bit of a trip going to Carson, I guess I'd be volunteering my wife. She'd be the... Yeah, we're a bit far down the road. You're a little bit far down the road, but I would be certainly excited to have her understand this process, to success, and learning these lessons from you. That will help her in anything else she's trying to achieve. I just love your philosophies. So, Julie... You said, I think in everything we do as humans, we are striving to connect with each other. I just love that. Can you explain what you mean by that? I think exactly what it is.
2: Like As human beings, I think we all want to be loved and we all want to be appreciated. Certainly I do. Um, Mm -hmm. And I want to feel like I belong where I am and that I'm contributing to... The group that I'm with in whatever capacity that is. And part of that is making sure that I'm connecting, like with you guys today, having a connection about love of sports and, and love of life, and then making sure that I'm helping people out and then I'm helping them help other people out. I just think it's it's kind of the core thing that we all feel that we belong and we're important in it's- whatever
1: way. You're just describing culture again in in another way that I love. And we all want to feel like we belong. We all want to contribute to a better culture. We want to feel like we're serving a purpose maybe for the greater good. And that gives them the environment to be able to do that when they are in a program like yours. So if somebody does want to get in touch with you, have their child come into your program, and this is just for kids, right? Uh, no we have we our youngest age we take is five so most of the
2: vast majority of my program is certainly for you know school-aged kids five through you know seniors in high school um, but I do also have a master's program for anybody you know I had a guy walk in a summer or two ago who he didn't even know how to swim, and he's like, I have a triathlon in three weeks. Can you teach me how to swim? <laughs> All right. He did do the triathlon, and he finished. Wonderful. Uh, and he stayed on for another year or two, and he's still doing triathlons. He's still coming Wednesday mornings. So, yeah, we have a, a grown-ups, a master's group, So and that's a mix of grown-ups who just want to be there for fitness or who are swimming competitively as master swimmers, or I have a, lot, a fair amount of triathletes
1: as well. Well, I'm telling you, it's a goal of mine when I grow up, I want to do some more triathlons. I did one, and I, I could barely keep myself above water beforehand. I did hire a coach, and I did a 70.3 Ironman. Wow. But it is a goal of mine to get more efficient and to do an actual full Ironman, qualify, go-to Hawaii and do well, the world That is a dream, isn't it? That is a dream. Got go to I gotta go to Kona. I got to go to Kona at one point, one day, but um, I always kind of feel a little silly that I work with so many triathletes and uh, I would be embarrassed if they saw me try to swim. So at some point you will find me in your class, I'm sure. <laughs> so... I'm glad we brought up the fact that you do work with adults, too. I didn't realize that. If they want to get in touch with you, adults or children, the whole family can get involved, what would they do? How how would they find you?
2: Best way is through our website, tigersharks.org, just as it's spelled. Or search Carson Tiger Sharks in Carson City, Nevada, and our website will be the first thing that pops up. Or my email address is jhart at gmail.com,
1: J-H-A-R-D-T. Awesome. Okay. And so a lot of times we just like to finish with habits because we talk so much about how habits really kind of form our lives, whether they're helpful habits or hurtful habits. And kind of like Dana, she had such a unique answer where both her best habits and her quote unquote worst habits were the same. But with you, you said your best habit is to drive for excellence in everything you do. It's clear that you do that. And your worst habit, I found this was also a great answer, interesting, my incessant worry that everything I do is crap. Yeah. So <laughs> I thought that was a great answer. Okay, so let's just finish with that. How how do you feel like your habits drive you or help you or hurt you?
2: Well, I think I'm, I'm constantly trying to better myself, both as a person and as a coach, and as a community member, I'm constantly looking for what's next, how can I improve, how can I be better? But, you know, like I said in my answer, I'm, I'm constantly worried that I'm not doing enough or that what I am doing is just not the best, which drives me to do more and drives me to be better. So, in when I'm working that in the positive, it means that I'm being creative and that I'm looking for new solutions to new problems or old problems and that I can create new and unique things and ways to deal with people. But when I'm working in the negative, it's really easy to spiral and just be like, everything I do is garbage, all of it's crap, nobody likes it, I may as well just do a different sport or or a different job or, which obviously is a little over the top, but you know, sometimes it's a spiral and sometimes I gotta
1: kick myself and get it out, you know? Yeah, no, and I, myself had started to develop a habit of walking more because everything i was doing seemed to be kind of more stressful even a lot of the training that i had been doing and have been doing for my upcoming uh, marathon it's just it's something i love but it's just it's more work again sure. i might love it but it's it's stressful so I started to do a little bit more walking in the mornings with my dog, Lily, yeah. and it just helps me so much to just decompress, or I might even do it at the end of the day before the sun goes down. And I noticed that you go out for walks with your dogs with your wife, right? Yeah, we, we
2: play disc golf sometimes when we got the time. She's just finishing her master's degree in, in nurse management, so we haven't been able to get out so much. So she has no time. She has no time. Yeah. She's but she's down to the last two weeks. Okay. Yay. All right. Oh, you can make congratulations. It. Um, you yeah. can do it. Yeah, she can do it. So then we'll get our weekends back. We'll go yeah, you know, we play disc golf and certainly my dog yeah, lots of walks with my dog Frio. So
1: Yeah, and just it might sound like such a simple thing, hey, go for a walk with your dog or your loved ones, but it's so yeah. important, right? You gotta put that into yeah. your life. Clearing the head and connecting and
2: And just calming down for a second, yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, it can't all be a grind. No. 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 Julie, this has been an honor, a pleasure. We talked about you coming into my facility. We're going to have a little bit of a conversation about dry land training, what we can do to serve swimmers in the best way possible. And I think we're going to have you back on. Do you agree to that? Yeah, that'd be awesome. So what I would... Now that we're best friends. Now that we're best friends. (laughs) I I, absolutely, and I just can't wait to... um go over these things with you and get your feedback. And we'll come back onto the podcast. We'll talk about maybe how some of these things are serving your athletes. And I just hope that maybe I can contribute a little bit to your culture. And I would love to learn more, especially when it comes to the sports psychology aspect of how I can help to improve our culture here. So thank you so much for coming on, Julie. It's, it's, it's been an absolute honor and a pleasure.
0: Thanks for having me. Julie, you're amazing. I appreciate you. Again, her email is jhart at gmail.com. That's heart with a D, H-A-R-D-T. And if you want to get in touch with us, we are Pendola project at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. We're also running a contest for the best review. That's right. We need your help letting other people know about the show. If you find something of value, write a review on Apple Podcasts, make it meaningful, make it sincere, and we will pick the best one to win a free pair of shoes from Reno Running Company and that is our appreciation to you for listening
1: and helping us spread the word. Yeah, man. So we are going to pick our winner for our best review and that can be you. December 18th. You can even give this shoe to someone that you know for Christmas or hey, it can be a present for you. And we will talk to you next time. Yeah, man.